This episode is brought to you by McDonald's. Not sure you've heard of them. <laughs> Up and coming uh, little restaurant, but they're making it. They're the little engine that could. You know, the moment of bliss when you spot your fries being scooped into the carton and suddenly time slows down. I have that all the time. I love their fries. Oh, yeah. yes. McDonald's fries hit different when they're free. That's another thing I'll tell you. And when they belong to your friends, there's no better feeling than thinking you're out of fries and then you discover extra fries at the bottom of your bag or else my son still hasn't finished his fries yeah. and I'm done with mine. And uh, he used to be weaker than me so I could just take them. Yeah. Now I can't because he's stronger than me. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no wrong way to eat McDonald's fries, but we all think our way is the best way. And I like stealing them from someone else. That's my favorite <laughs> way. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. McDonald's, check them out sometime. They're everywhere. There's a code I live by. There is? It goes like this. Sometimes the ride can be more exciting than the destination. Oh, yeah. That I wish that like had you. been my yearbook quote. I wish it had been. <laughs> Instead, my quote was, please don't hit me. No. Hey. <laughs> well, guess what? I'm bringing up all this for a reason. The 2024 <laughs> Nissan Pathfinder can take you from muddy jungle paths to rolling sand dunes. But it's not about where you go. Don't you get it? In a Pathfinder, the real excitement comes from getting there. Yeah. It's the journey, man. Chase bigger adventures with Pathfinder. Seven drive modes and available intelligent four-wheel drive. Seven drive modes. That's a lot of drive modes. Well, it's specifically seven, yeah. Yeah. And bring the fun with you with Pathfinder's 6,000 pounds of towing capacity. And I love to tow. 6,000 pounds. What? Visit. I like to tow stuff. But you don't tow anything. Yes, I do. I'm going to buy a boat tomorrow and tow it. <laughs> I'll never put it in the water, but I'll tow it and I'll use it. I'll tow it in my Pathfinder. Hey, visit <laughs> NissanUSA.com to learn more. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Towing capacity varies by configuration. See Nissan Towing Guide and Owner's Manual for additional information. Always secure cargo. You got to secure cargo. Hi, my name's Dave Grohl, and I feel... Um... I feel good about being Conan's friend. That feels like a qualified good. Yeah, I'm still unsure. <laughs> Hello, I'm Chris Novoselic, and I feel jazzy about being Conan O'Brien's friend. Yes. See? No pause, no anxiety, just joy, sir. My name is Steve Albini, and I feel uh, anxiety about being Conan O'Brien's friend. You can feel that it's palpable. And not uncommon, I'm sure. <laughs> Hey, welcome to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Uh, of course, usually there's a lot of nonsensical bibble babble at the top of the podcast. Today, there really isn't time for that. This is a very special episode. Uh, recently, I had this very cool opportunity to fly to Chicago and sit down and chat with Nirvana members Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic, along with producer, audio engineer Steve Albini, so that we could talk about the making of the classic album In Utero, which came out 30 years ago in September 1993. I remember this time very well because I was launching my late night show and the uh, In Utero music was really the soundtrack to that crazy time in my life. So uh, really cool 
that my guest today sat with me and we chatted about this very important record. We covered a lot of ground, including what it was like to deal with the pressures of suddenly being the number one rock band in the world, uh, how they could follow up the unexpected massive success of their album, Nevermind. Uh, and Dave and Chris also shared some memories of their friend and bandmate, Nirvana's creative leader, Kurt Cobain. So let's listen in. This is an honor. Thank you very much for gathering here. It's the 30th anniversary of In Utero. And uh, it, my first question for the three of you was, does it feel like 30 years? Well, it's, you know, there's the time component. It's temporal, right? And I, I just, when I look back, I think there's somebody who's missing here. Mm-hmm. There's a person that should be here right now. Yeah. And Kurt Cobain's not here. And so, you know, just... Facing that, you know, and, and looking back at that time, I mean, it was great time to make the record. I had a good time and we were really productive. And that was like the glue that kept the band together was just, we really liked to play together and we played well together. And we Sorry, made this. I didn't understand that. <laughs> okay, this is, this is absolute bullshit. And all of this is staying in. So, so Chris so Novoselic, uh, watch just yeah, Chris, went off. What the, what the fuck were you Albini, talking about just now? It made no sense. Can't keep his phone. Okay, Grohl, you're next. What have you, what's on you right now? I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. Yeah. Hey Siri, answer Conan's question. <laughs> hey Siri, why, why did Hal kill the crew in 2001? <laughs> Oddity. It feels like just yesterday that we recorded. It'd be great if Siri had a really good perky answer. Um, so yes, you were the saying AI. before you were rudely interrupted by a computer. Well, I should have just had the AI spew it out. Yeah. But so... <sighs> I mean, we could tell stories about the record, like how we made it. It was a good time. I mean, we were in this house in Granite Falls, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Cannon Falls. Cannon, Cannon Falls. Falls. Cannon Falls. I don't, yeah, thank you. I stand. Siri, where is our Isn't Alexa Granite or? Falls where Rocky and Bullwinkle are from? Probably. We'll pursue that cul-de-sac a little and, later. And Boris. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I remember I have a very clear memory of this album coming out because I had there's, I think, a three-day difference between when In Utero drops and when I start my late-night television show. Oh, wow. The music on the uh, album, because I was such a huge fan, being such a background music to the terror and the weirdness of me starting a late-night show from complete obscurity in 1993. So... That's similar to the Nirvana experience, I would imagine. That, you know, at the time we were... When the band became popular... Um, in 1991, we were so young. Yeah, you know, I think I was 21 or 22, and you might have been 25 or something. But we were, we were, kids. um, kids. we were kids. Yeah, and so you know, when you talk about the uh, the amount of time that's gone by, to me, it's not even so much about the the years. It's about the experiences um, that just kind of led one after another, going from three kids that were basically living or touring out of a van to then becoming a huge band and then in utero becoming uh the sort of the uncomfortable soundtrack to that sort of um transition by 1992 1993 we were living in a different world than we were just 16 months before you know i was thinking about it today and i was thinking the only way that you can understand the making of in utero is to understand where you were at that time the only way to understand that is to start with 
Nevermind, which had its Geffen Records' modest expectations by the record label. They, I think they were going to be very happy if you sold 250,000 units. They printed 50,000 units of the CDs. 50,000. 50,000. Thinking that should do it. And if we have to make more, we will. I talked to someone who was working at Geffen at the time. They said when Nevermind hit uh, and started to blow up and then really blow up, at one point they had to stop making and manufacturing all of the other CDs for the other artists on their label and turn them all over to making Nevermind. Hmm which sounds like something that just doesn't happen. It was completely unprecedented. And so that's the good news. But with that comes all kinds of bullshit. Well, you, you mentioned time, Conan. And so like, personally, you know, that was 30 years ago, but that time from when Nevermind released and then Kurt died, what happened in that span of time feels like it was 10 years. Yeah. 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 It was so much going, there was so, so much intense. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking like, you know, f for me, it took my entire childhood to prepare me for adolescence, right? And then it took my entire adolescence and young adulthood prepare me for being gainfully employed and independent as a as a person, right? So, like, you have a long runway for like the major stages in in your life, and like Nirvana went from being couch surfers to being the biggest band ever in the world in a span of about eighteen months. Something like that. Like, I can't fathom the kind of whiplash in every part of your life. Like, you go from being, from having normal relationships with normal people who see you as another normal person to every time you walk in a room, everybody's mouth just drops open and you're, you're like the, instantly you're the center of attention and everyone has like expectations and questions and demands and they want to attach themselves to you. Like, everything changes just from, being a normal schmuck to being this like intensely public figure on whom other people have laid incredible expectations and and on on whom other people are like literally dependent their careers are dependent on your behavior and your whims and so now they feel like they have to marshal that they have to like participate yep. in how you are as a person because of their self-interest it's like this like uniquely perversely capitalist notion and well, suddenly you guys are responsible for an industry and the thing that occurs to me is that fame money success is great news for a lot of artists in the business and a lot of music artists if you come from the punk world and you are religious adherence to the punk ethos which you guys were and kurt was success is tricky because there's so many artists, if they make a lot of money, go out and get a Bentley. You know, Jesus, the, the Beatles were very comfortable going out and getting a Rolls Royce and paying it. was either exactly. that or paying 90% taxes. Right, right. Okay, well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> and we're going to do a second one where we get into taxation. <laughs> but what I wanted to point out was there's a whole culture of, yay, we made it and we throw money around. There's almost a shame and a trap that's set if you're part of the punk ethos, isn't there? So I want to, this is something that I have run into over and over and over again, is people outside the music scene, people who are not band members, not musicians, not part of the culture of punk at all, ascribing 
to punks mm-hmm. this notion that success is bad mm-hmm. and this notion that if you are successful, you are somehow bad and evil and that it is that we don't want people to become successful. I have never experienced that genuinely from right. anybody in uh, any anyone in the, in the punk scene that wasn't purely a jealousy, exp- an expression of jealousy. Right. On the whole, Nirvana's fans wanted Nirvana to become successful and self-sustaining and be loved. So I just wanted to clear the air and say, like, like there was no animosity toward Nirvana. Nirvana, not as animosity a towards. Band. I'm talking about the band itself. So you know, before we made the record, Nevermind, we were pretty much living in squalor, right? Mm-hmm. So I was living with Kurt in this tiny little apartment, and there were just corn dog sticks and cigarettes all over the place, and it was like it was pretty awful. <laughs> fucking disgusting. Yeah, I would have done anything to had to have my own apartment, you know, like and and to be able to do that through making music. I know that the the transition happened really quickly, but it didn't happen. You didn't just wind up with a million dollars in your mailbox the next day. Right, it went from being like uh, the per diem went up to fifteen dollars a day. I was like, oh my God, that means I can get two packs of cigarettes or whatever. And then, you know, went from this couldn't then, possibly get better. Like, I'm gonna, <laughs> I honestly, know, like, exactly. That I'm way. saying like, that's how oh it feels. Oh my gosh, we're staying in a motel. You know, I'm sharing a room with Kurt or whatever, but mm-hmm. it's not someone's floor. And then just small things. And then from September to December of 1991 is when everything really blew up. And um, I didn't feel conflicted or any guilt or shame in knowing, like, Oh, I just I just paid off my mother's house. Yeah, yeah. Or I I bought my mother a car. Or um now I can afford to, you know, buy a new pair of shoes or whatever it was. I didn't and I think the reason why I I I personally didn't feel so conflicted about everything was because I knew that the band hadn't done anything outside of our our our, our true selves to, mm-hmm. to get there. We just did the thing that we did and then it happened. And so mm-hmm. um that was just my experience after I, and then i and then i got to i got to move in with another friend and have a house and i remember it's funny you talk about the bentley remember that fucking weird yugoslavian car that you bought did you own a yugo no no what was it didn't you get some car didn't you buy some car that was like this tiny thing oh the renault dauphine oh that's no, what it somebody was somebody gave it to me oh right <laughs> Wait, that's, so that, that was I your gave, rock star moment? Is that I'm someone saying. gave you a like, Renault Dauphine? Which yeah. sounds like, like a shoe more than a car. I know? barely fit in it. I got it running pretty good. But yeah, I mean, we, of course, we didn't <laughs> go straight to the Bentleys and stuff like that. But very I mean, it, I, I, I was very happy to um, have finally been able to really support myself as a musician. Now they're doing d- the thing that I love to do. There is, and this is what's getting us towards in utero, is there is... A lot of stuff that comes with being uh, the the number one rock band. Suddenly, there's all this tabloid noise in Kurt and Courtney's life. That's creating a lot of drama. And then the other thing that starts to creep in is a dissatisfaction with Nevermind being too slick. Mm. And now, well, where does see, that does well, that Kurt, where does that come from? You have to ask him about that. Ask and, Kurt. Ask okay. him, and he will see. And it goes into our the we were talking about just like the pressure of being the sudden fame. And then Kurt had, he got more attention because he was out front. Yeah. Okay. So then he felt more pressure. Okay. Then, yeah, he started to do heroin and that he loved drugs Mm -hmm. and there's a price for that. And that complicated things a lot. Remember Dave and I went to go see him in the rehab. He was in a rehab and we're going, how are you doing? It was good. So good to see him. And he was doing all right. And he goes, you know that Steve Jones came to visit me? 
and he didn't have to do that. I mean, that was really nice. It's from the Sex Pistols. Sure, Steve Jones yeah. came. And we're like, what's he like? Kurt's like, he was wearing Birkenstocks. <laughs> <laughs> Talk yeah. about a fucking sellout. <laughs> well, the guitarist for the I Sex mean, Pistols is wearing Birkenstocks. <laughs> Yeah, but it's very upsetting. But he went to the rehab to see. He didn't have to do that, but yeah. it was nice that he, yeah. that was a nice yeah, thing to do. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, just dealing with that stuff, I mean. Hi. There's that nonsense, but yeah. were you guys, because I know Kurt was very vocal about thinking that, never mind, yes, huge hit, but he thought the production was too slick. And that I, is something that he said at the time. He may have changed his mind about that later on had he lived. It, it must have been like 1989, 1990. And we were cruising in this van and I think we were listening to Surfer Rosa. And then Kurt was sitting there in the chair and he raises his finger and makes a decree. He goes, this shall be our snare sound. <laughs> <laughs> Surfer Rosa, the Pixies. The Pixies, mm -hmm. Surfer Rosa, yeah. So that's Ooh, made by that. yours truly. Yeah. And then he, and then that's the, there you go, that we ended up in working with Steve. So that's. Well, this is, yeah. you know what I think? I think as you were talking earlier mm -hmm. about um, feeling uncomfortable with this new world of Nirvana fame and stuff like that. I think that when things did become huge, that we all sort of kind of retreated and sort of clung to the things that we felt most attached to whether it was weird old cars or going back to virginia or uh whatever it may have been for kurt but always musically i think that um whether it was kurt feeling like nevermind may have been over too produced or too overproduced or something we had always listened to records that steve had made i remember mm -hmm. when i first moved in with kurt i think he only had like four records. It was like, well, he had, he had a Mark Lanigan record. Uh, there was Surfer Rosa. There was a Breeders Pod and a Jesus Lizard record. And that was just the sound that we felt most, um, that we loved. And I think we had probably wanted to work with Steve before we made Nevermind, but we wound up making it with Butch. Um who, it the should be said, is no slouch. Like, yeah, yeah. But Butch, Butch Vig as the producer on Nevermind. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, what you're bringing up is that kind of in the background all along, there was this sound that, that Steve Albini was getting with the Pixies, with the Breeders, that spoke to you guys. And so my question for, for you guys is, what is that sound? Okay, it's the snare. Is it, is it the recording of the drums or is it something bigger than that? It's the collective sound of all of those things uh where not one seems to be kind of in front of the other to me it always sounds really centered where it's like the vocal isn't jumping ahead of everything else or things are like riding up and down it sounds like the sound of a group in uh in a space um and really just natural you know i mean i think who was it that talked about distance in recording well, Steve the, will the talk distance, your ear off well, yeah, but like how dips, distance <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, I am a creates punisher depth. about this stuff. Right. Yeah. And so if you listen to a lot of the uh, drum sounds with Steve's stuff, there is sort of this sense of distance in a way that gives the sound more depth. That's mm -hmm. what I think. And it, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but but Steve, it felt like your what you were going for and what you were about was you wanted the band to sound like the band. You wanted them to sound like this is how they sound when they're in a room and they're together and something real is happening. You want it, You don't want all that separation. You don't want double tracking. You don't want a lot of fall to raw nonsense. 
Well, there is a, I mean, there's seems to be set a, setting up as a kind of a compare and contrast between me and Butch Vig. And I, mm-hmm. I should point out that Butch Vig's production aesthetic and his like approach as an engineer was like formed in precisely the same way that mine was doing budget records for dead broke bands uh, in a, a short amount of time like trying to be as efficient as possible with with not just with the time but with the materials and like you're hitting your snare drum head so hard we're going to have to buy a new snare drum head you know so like uh let me let me put some gaffer on there or something to keep so that we don't split the dr- snare drum head that like his aesthetic and his techniques are very much in the same school as mine the thing that i remember most about the nirvana butch connection is that when we got to the studio to start work on the In Utero album, Kurt had a cassette of the rough mix that Butch had given him of the Nevermind Sessions. It wasn't the finished album that was in the stores. It was the cassette of, of the tracks that Butch had done without any like fanciful mixing, without any, any like, yeah. yeah, just like these are the tracks. And he played that to get familiar with the sound of the studio. He played it through the speakers. And I thought it sounded fucking fantastic. Do you guys know what I'm, do you remember that? No. Uh, I thought it sounded fucking great. And I don't remember Forgive me. I don't remember hearing the the Nevermind album and thinking, well, this sounds fucking great. It didn't bring to mind any of the records that Butch had done that I was familiar with that were the records that made his reputation and probably made Nirvana want to work with him in the first place. So to be fair, to just go back to that time, Nevermind is out. They're, they're the biggest band in the world. They're looking to make their follow-up album. Um, at that time, what did you... Were you a fan? Were you a fan of Nirvana? I wasn't super familiar with Nirvana. I had heard like the ubiquitous stuff that everyone that was being played on the radio and all the clubs and like every gig you would go to as you were loading in, the sound guy would put Nevermind on to crank the PA and balance the PA. So I had heard the album many times sort of secondhand, right? I wasn't a student of Nirvana. If I had ever seen him play live, I'm certain I would have become a fan. So the decision is made. We would like Steve Albini to produce this record. And most people, I think anyone else on the planet in that position would have said, please, 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 please. And you write this letter when you find out that they're interested. And this letter is not a please hire me letter. <laughs> it's a great letter. So, but it is, it is a, I'll do it, but here are my conditions well, letter, let, let which me, is really, which is, imp- first of all, uh, this is a compliment. Sounds like that Ethereum thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bit, it is, it? Yeah. I mean, it really is a, uh, it's a bit of a screed about what you believe. And I will do this if you do it on my terms and if you're willing to do it. And then you shockingly say, I'm not taking points on this record. I, I don't want to do that. You said, I want to be paid like a plumber. Just give me some money up front. But you thought it was immoral to get points in the record. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the way that record producers and recording people are compensated in at that time in particular was a trick of accounting that shifted the cost away from the label and toward the band, made the band ultimately responsible for whatever the producer got paid. Uh, And it didn't come out of the general proceeds of the record the way it would in an independent labels contract, for example. It came specifically out of the money that would otherwise have gone to the band. Like literally every dollar I would get paid would mean that was a dollar that Dave didn't get or Chris didn't get or Kurt didn't get. I mean, that's just the way the that's the way the accounting works in those kinds of deals. And I've I think that's ethically untenable. I don't 
I and I I'll admit that I think less of people who opt to do things that way. I think it's on its face, it's absurd. Like yeah. I work on a record for a few days and then for the rest of your fucking life, you have to keep paying me. Like yeah. you get me a give me a chip off of every nickel that you I'd, earn. I'd like you to talk to my agent and my manager, <laughs> if you would. <laughs> So no, where else can you go surfing and skiing the same day, huh? I don't know. Or check out a world-class art museum and then camp at a dark sky sanctuary that night, huh? Yeah. Yeah, where else can you hike through Redwoods and then get a luxury spa treatment? Where? Well, you live there. California. <laughs> California, Sona. No matter where California. you go across the state, you'll find a way to play. I'm a California resident. So are you. Sona, you are a lifelong California resident. I'm a lifer. I love this place. This is a beautiful state. Gorgeous. So many different, wonderful ecosystems in one state. You can hang out by a Palm Springs pool. You know, you can go whale watching. You can go hiking in Yosemite. And then uh, talk about the great cities in California. You get all this amazing food, sushi, whatever you want. They got it in California. Hey, if you can't find it in California, man, you got a problem. Yeah. I shouldn't have done that. I made that up on my own. Anyway, I love California. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform. And one source of truth. This is unbelievable. I've been talking about this idea for years. I know. I want you to explain it more. I can. Okay. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required access from anywhere. I had this idea years ago. <laughs> I was telling people, no one listened to me. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems. Remember when I said that? Yeah. Because you've got one unified, unified business, business management, management suite. suite. You yes. said that. Yeah. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, man. Yeah. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Conan, netsuite.com slash Conan. I'm going to say it one more time just for emphasis, netsuite.com. Slash Conan. Is your money just sitting around being lazy? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I don't like Get that. Get a job, money. No, that's not what I oh. meant. But in a way, it is what I meant. Okay. That's a good point, Sona. You have hard-earned cash, and it should always be working towards a better financial future for you. Your money shouldn't be sitting around you know, watching reruns on TV and eating nachos, it should be working for you. Well, guess what? Robinhood pioneered commission-free stock trading over a decade ago. They continue to offer innovative products to help you maximize your money's potential. That's good. You gotta have that money working for you, man. Yeah. With over 23 million funded customers, Robinhood is helping people build a better financial future. With Robinhood, it's simple to make investments towards your future goals, whatever those may be. We all have some bucket list items to cross off and Robinhood has tools to help you pursue them. Investing a small amount now could make a big difference 30 years down the road. That's good. Isn't that a nice thing? Give yourself 30 years from now a gift of what you do now. 
<laughs> it's nice to be in the driver's seat and have autonomy when making investments, which is easy to do with Robinhood. Take your financial future by the reins. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. Investing involves risk and loss principle is possible. Remember that? Other fees may apply. Returns are not guaranteed. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker-dealer. Speaking about this letter, very yeah. specifically, the letter sort of acquired a, a, a notoriety of its own because it was included in the re, some of the reissue materials, and it was sort of, for the first time, the general public got to read this correspondence, right? What happened was that I had had several phone conversations with Kurt about the prospect of me working on a record, and we talked all of this stuff through. Like, So some of the things in there that sound kind of flippant or sound like I'm being kind of brusque, that's based on a conversational awareness between me and mm-hmm. Kurt. Were you guys united that, yep, Steve, Steve is the guy. And were you united, were you united in this new direction, uh, stripped down, leaner to do in utero? Was that like, you felt like all three of you were united in that idea? Yeah. I've been, so, you know, it's funny. We were uh, in between, <clears throat> I guess it might've been 1992 when we went down to Brazil. We had that week off in Brazil. Oh, yeah. We, um, we were playing this festival is called the Hollywood Rock Festival in Rio and Sao Paulo. So there are two shows, one weekend in Rio, one in Sao Paulo. And then we had a whole week off in between and we had nothing to do. So we found this studio that I think belonged to the record company. Yeah, it was a record company. And they're like, hey, there's this nice old Neve board in here. You're not doing anything. So we set up our gear and just started fucking around, maybe for two or three days. And um, I think maybe Kurt had some riffs and some things here and there. Um, a lot of it was just jamming, but it was it was great because it was just the three of us in this room with uh, nothing but time to fuck around and no one to tell us what or to do or how to do it. And I I think that that was kind of the beginning of the vibe of uh, coming to record with Steve. Like there was it, it wasn't there was really a laundry fancy... room. There was Barrett's basement with his the, laundry room. The, yeah, in my house in my basement. Yeah, and there was a la- la- washer and dryer there, and we set up and we just we did these like improvisation songs. Again, I think that a lot of this was meant as some sort of return to us feeling like we still own ourselves or we own we're still the same people uh we're still the same band and we're not to be changed by all the other crazy bullshit and we felt most comfortable doing it like that it's funny i having been in the foo fighters now for so long when i think about being in nirvana it was just when we got in a room to play music it was so fucking simple there was all of that other complication just disappeared literally like put my drums in the back of my car, go to Chris's house, then go to the basement and put it in there and start playing. Even though people consider us to be this giant band, we still functioned as we always had when it came to making music. So I think that's, I think the Brazil stuff is really, that's where I started to get a vibe or a feel of what was going to happen when we went to record with Steve. Those were considered like demos, you know. The magic was the, the three of you guys working together and not being really interfered with that much and so you have this weird trip to south america where accidentally you get to reconnect with that yeah which is pretty amazing and then you think okay we think we we think we know the guy who can do this and that takes us to the studio where you record this which is 50 miles south of 
Minneapolis? Yeah, I had been there a couple of times already. But also... I have a question. Yeah, go. This studio, it's called Pachyderm Studio. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. The house was beautiful. It was like a Frank Lloyd Wright looking thing. I have an indoor swimming pool. Meets the Brady Bunch house. It's like the Brady Bunch house. But flank, kind of flank Brady Bunch. Am I crazy? Or was this place owned by some kid that inherited a bunch of money from his rich family? Because his rich family was the family that invented that smoked brown plastic desk organizer desk organizer yes the yes. story you're relaying is 100 <laughs> percent true the really? guy that no started, one could make that up i thought steve made it up and told it to me so i want to set the picture for people because one of you i don't know who it was described it as a gulag meaning you go <laughs> i think that was, it was you chris he was reading solzhenitsyn like <laughs> he's walking through the gulag and he can hear the snow crunch beneath his Boots. Yeah, beneath his boots, yeah. and he's and and it, it it's like uh, uh you know a, an ancient Soviet detention center, but a lot of it makes sense with be, an indoor swimming pool. With an indoor it swimming pool, it was nice, which a lot of gulags had. To be fair, <laughs> no. the nicer gulags had it. Um, but Steve, it's almost like you were offering them a sensory deprivation tank, saying, "Well, come to this middle of nowhere. You were booked because you're huge stars, number one band in the world. You're booked as the Simon Ritchie Group. Oh yeah, there was a general concern about." Kurt having a relapse, so they didn't want him to be in an urban setting mm-hmm. uh, that had another layer of concern, which is that like w- I shouldn't even tell them that Nirvana is coming to their studio because even if only one person tells one person, that one person is going to tell for sure one person, and that one person is for sure going to tell a hundred people, and before you know it, there's going to be a fucking news truck and a bunch of teenagers outside this studio, no matter where it is, right? Right. And we got away with it for kind of a long time. Like, it was, I think, the end of the first week, some local kid showed up at the front door because he saw Kurt at the supermarket or something. (laughs) On the snowmobile. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we got away with it. Like the the studio didn't know that Nirvana was coming to record at their studio. I booked it under my name. I had done a bunch of sessions there, like I said, and uh, told him, yeah, it's the Simon Ritchie group. It's a country and Western outfit. (laughs) And and a lot of things were sort of tactical. Like Kurt didn't have to be handled with with mittens. Like it wasn't like he was like on the verge of relapse every second. It was just anyone that's in recovery, they're an addict, right? To the point of you're in this very remote location and at the end of your letter, you say, P.S., if a record takes more than a week to make, somebody's fucking up. (laughs) So your ethos was, I want to get this band in a room and let them play. And I will place the mics. I will do what I, I, I will do my job, but I want to really capture this band uh, live. And that experience of seeing Nirvana show up and play for you, you know, uh, live. So how did you feel when you first saw them play? What I wanted was for them to go into a studio and behave normally. You don't have to just sit there in a room by yourself playing to a click track. You get to play with your band around you like always, you know. We don't have to replace everything with a microscope and tweezers. You can just play like a band. You know, behave normally. Have the normal experience that is the thing that got you animated about music and about this band in the the first place. Exactly. You guys had had some downtime... And the impression I get from everything I've read and everyone I've talked to is that you came into the in utero experience ready to go. 
with a real sense of purpose and playing really fucking well. Is that, does that feel right, to, uh, accurate description? Yeah. I think so. The first song we did was Serve the Servants, and then we had met Steve and he set up, and then I remember Steve just standing by the, that big Studer tape machine that, and you know, just he's, he hits record and he's got his arms crossed, and he's watching us, and we knocked the song out in one take. And we're like, oh, that was the keeper. Literally the first thing recorded in the session is the first song on the album as recorded. What's amazing is a lot of songs were done in a take or two takes, but there's a, there's a thing that like, so far, none of the train spotters have mentioned this. So I, I don't know if it's generally known, but the, the song, there's like a quiet bit of the song and then it kicks in to full Monty. And we had done a sound check of the instruments before they did the take, but the full Monty was Kurt kicked on an overdrive pedal, which he hadn't used in the sound check. So when the first loud bit comes in, the guitars were pinning on the tape machine like yeah. he was about 60 dB hotter than proper for the session, right? So I immediately grabbed those channels and ratcheted them back. So the first beat of the loud part, the tape machine is slightly overdriving and those channels are in the red and it's, you know, bad engineering on my part. But, you know, by the second or the third beat, it was back to normal. So, But there is this moment, there's this like slightly... Uh, like you were attentive, yeah. You caught it. It's like you know, right. or a couch guy just like telling your guy, "Hey, turn that down," or he, you know. But in a, a conventional guy. in a conventional setting, just the fact that we went over on that first beat, just the fact that it was the first run through, just the fact that there there was this potential scar, and it would be enough to say. All right, well, let's that, let's do it again. Let, you know, let, let's do it. That was nice for a first take. Let's try it again. But everybody heard it on playback, and I mentioned it. I said, you know, there's an overload here on this first beat because I, I wasn't prepared for the overdrive, and, I, you know, I got it back, got it in line. But And everybody heard it on a playback and was like, yeah, that's fine. And so that's on the record now, which is the, the sort of thing that, you know, when you're working in budget conditions and, like, sort of grubby studio sessions, that shit happens all the time, and you just live with it. But for a band of their stature and of their resources to be able to say, you know, let's go ahead and use the first take just because it sounds fine. We're, you know, we're not that picky. I think I thought that was a, a remarkable display. Nevermind, I think was two months maybe to make. And then Utero is... Nevermind was like 12 days or 14 days. Was it 14 days? I thought it was... Yeah, it was really quick. Really? The recording of it, yeah. The recording it of it, like, but then it's... Oh, and then the mix and the stuff, The mixing yeah. and everything that. I mean, I think Soup to Nuts we in were, Utero is two we, and a half weeks, oh, three weeks. If we had been a little bit more efficient, we could have been out the door in 12 days. But I, I think we were done in 14 for you sure. Know, here's the thing. So because we were looking for that kind of performance and we were looking for that kind of recording and most of the takes were maybe one or two takes or something we were done with the drums and i think the basic tracks in what three days or three or four days three or four days so that left me with a good week <laughs> of sitting around doing fucking nothing in that house like The Shining, watching those David Attenborough yes, videotapes, yeah. like things like that. Wait, like, why are you watching David Attenborough videos? Because there was nothing videos. else to do. Yeah. yeah. And this is before <laughs> uh, streaming. This is a different oh, time. Oh, I would do the yeah. fireplace. I would start fires, remember? Yeah. And I would do the fireplace. Very would, primordial, would, primordial activities. A, a man tending the fire. Yeah, it was very <laughs> shining. It, it, it was very shining. Yeah, okay. You mentioned it so I can bring it up. You say tending fires. There was also uh, some pyromania uh, happening during the making of 
in in utero. And I don't know if this was uh, in, this was something that you guys picked up. These from. guys would play with lighter fluid. Yeah, yeah. let's talk about that. Let's well, get it. Cleaning solvent. It was a cleaning solvent that was used in the studio to clean the tape heads and clean clean uh, equipment and stuff. It's a very pure alcohol that burns off. So you can like you can put it on your hand and set your hand on fire. And like, oh look, I'm you know I'm the human torch. Blah, sure, blah, blah. it's fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And, and so I'm sure he has some here. I brought some in. <laughs> We're gonna all douse ourselves with yeah. it. And, uh, you know, you get bored with setting regular things on fire and then you start setting other people on fire and stuff, you know. <laughs> what, what, what kind of things are you setting on fire? Did you... My ass. You we did that you, one. Yeah. I think you lit a cigar off of my ass. Yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> while that was on fire. Was there any... How long is your ass on fire for? What's the amount of time? Uh, well... Long enough, for, thousand, long enough for, for Chris to light a cigar, so that's, yeah. I'm thinking that's at least 10 seconds. And for someone to take a picture. And... Yeah, okay. Did you ever <clears throat> smell anything cooking? <laughs> Just our hot tracks. Um, <laughs> no, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're out in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. No, things, thing, you light things on fire. We did. Uh, there were also prank phone calls. Oh, because oh, Steve had this uh, realistic, like, remember Radio Shack? And it was a it was a microphone, like, you can stick on a phone, the microphone part of yep. a phone. I or the receiver, the receiver part. In that you record. there. You, you still have it? I might have, yeah. So you, you can have some of these recordings? You can record off the phone, like, on a cassette, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've done some research. And like Nixon, really you should have gotten rid of these tapes. Uh, you guys pranked Gene Simmons. Yeah. I believe it one of Kiss fame. <laughs> That's who, my favorite who, one. Who, deserve, really who deserves one. pranking, by the my way. My favorite one. That was he deserves really pranking. One. I don't know if you've ever spoken to Gene Simmons. He sounds, yes, I yeah. have. I love I the have. Melvins. <laughs> that was my favorite. He says what? I love the Melvins. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he does. Yeah. He does. He sounds uh, just like Jackie Mason. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he was on my show once and all he did was sell merchandise and I yeah. kept trying to get him to tell interesting stories and he'd say, we'll get to that. But first, and then he'd go in and he'd say the kiss coffin. And he had a kiss coffin yeah. that he was selling. <laughs> Absolutely true. I pretended to be Kurt calling Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons had reached out to Kurt. Gene oh, Simmons had no. called their management because there was a kiss tribute album being put together. And Nirvana, the biggest band in the world, were friends with the Melvins. And the Melvins did a kiss cover. And he assumed that uh, Nirvana would want to do a kiss cover to be on the Gene Simmons cannot fathom that anyone on earth is not a massive Kiss fan. Right. I'm going to say this, a healthy ego. <laughs> and Gene, if you're listening, this is a good thing to have. When it's I was like 12 years old to like maybe 14, I was huge in a Kiss. Yeah. Yeah. And Gene was my favorite. Yeah. And Nirvana had recorded a Kiss song Oh, once. God, that was a disaster. What did you record? We were drunk. Do you love me? Uh-huh. We were drunk. Okay. Well, a so, few drinks are needed to record a Kiss song sometimes. So the word comes down that Gene Simmons is desperate to get Nirvana on this album. And Kurt is like, I don't want to talk to fucking Gene Simmons. And I said, I'll do it. <laughs> you know? So I called him, I called them, called him back and I pretended to be Kurt. And I parried the whole thing away by saying that I wasn't making all the decisions because I had a reliability problem. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, and are you talking directly to Gene? Yeah, as and, Kurt. And Gene thinks he's talking to Kurt. Yeah. And Kurt is sitting right next to me, listening to me do an impression of him. You do a really good Kurt, by the way. Steve. Really Can we hear just a second of you talking to Gene Was Simmons? Kurt, I can just see Kurt giggling. Do you know 
do you, do you know the wipers? <laughs> That's a good. I, re- one. I really love the wipers. Do you know the wipers? And then Gene Simmons comes uh, back with, I don't know the wipers. <laughs> I, I know the Melvins. I love the Melvins. I know the Melvins. I don't know the wipers. I love the Melvins. You call. I love this one. You call Evan Dando. No, even better. Evan Dando. There was someone in Evan Dando's tour party mm-hmm. who was a friend of Nirvana. And had the phone number for the studio and called from a hotel in Australia, a direct call from a hotel in Australia, probably the most expensive fucking phone call that you could make. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Build to the to the room. So Evan Dando's like footing the bill for the most expensive direct call on earth. And what we did was we somehow we convinced that guy found Evan and convinced him that Madonna's personal assistant had found, had tracked him down at the hotel in Australia and wanted to talk to him. That's it. That's the whole, that's the whole context. So Evan Nano thinks he's on hold waiting for Madonna. Right. And every few (laughs) minutes I would get back on the phone and say, she asked me to place the call. She's still busy. Can you, can you wait a little bit longer? And I had some absurd accent Uh that I thought Madonna's assistant would have, you know? And, and now Madonna has. And then he's just like, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. I'll wait. Yeah, of course. And so <laughs> literal silence for minutes on end on this. And then the sound of him exasperatedly like telling everyone around him, like, I'm on the I'm on hold for Madonna, you know? <laughs> and he's paying for the whole thing. Sure. Because it was actually, the call actually It's a $700,000 prank phone call. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And then- Australian uh, dollars. Eddie Vedder, I think, was there a prank called Eddie Vedder at some point? Yeah, and I don't remember why that one. That was me as well. I don't remember why we did that one. Because I don't, there was no, you guys weren't like fighting or feuding with no, him. No, no, no. Yeah. so. Um, I do remember getting him on the phone and telling him, I pretended to be Tony Visconti, mm-hmm. record producer. I remember producer. that. And you're, by the way, you're supposed to be the adult in the room. I remember that. You know, I you're know, the guy that's supposed to be, you're in charge Every, and you're lighting, you're lighting artists on fire you were, and, uh, and, and, and prank calling so, people. But he's, like, he's like, I'm producing David Bowie or something. <laughs> I remember that. I can't remember what it was, but I can't remember the context, but I was like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm here with the Black Crows or something. I had some bullshit yeah. band that I claimed that I was with and then I, and I think we're playing me your record and I, I want to get you in the studio with a real band, guys who can really play. <laughs> That's pretty good. Did he get mad at us uh, or no? Yeah. Well, you have these. You're gonna you got to put these out at some yeah, point. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I genuinely don't remember the the banter, but I do remember. I think he, I thought he handled it pretty deftly. He I don't. A, I think he, he acquitted well. himself well, like talking on the phone to Tony Visconti, record producer, who wanted to fire his band. Do you? Um, you say at one point you say. It, it, he goes, where, where are you? I'm in Manitoba. <laughs> and then he said, he said, do you know where that is? And there's this long pause. He goes, no. <laughs> oh, please put these out. You'll get yeah. the releases. I'll take, I'll take care of the legal end no. of it. Just please release these. One of the nice things about the studio is it's residential. Like you're there the whole time. You can, you know, get up there's in the morning and have go, breakfast. Right? You there's can nowhere take to a, go. You can take a long walk, in, I think, in the woods. Yeah, there's a creek there. Well, I mean, there. we also, I don't know if we've uh, really established that this was in February. Yeah. Yes. The dead of winter. In the dead of winter. Icicles. In the middle like of fucking nowhere. 20-foot icicles off the eaves of all the buildings. So yeah. even just a walk from the house to the studio, which is, what, 100 yards? Yeah. If that, you risk frostbite. So there's really no getting out and doing anything. 
um, it, it, we were all just kind of really contained in this beautiful house. It was great. But there's no little town to go to. No, I mean, there I never, is. There's a, like, if you want to drive a few miles, you can get into the little town of Cannon Falls, but there's like a bar and like an antique shop and like a gas station. That's yeah, it. There's, I have really fond memories of making that record, to be honest. Like, I, I really had fun. Yeah. And um, I think that we, it sounded so good as we were doing it, just within the room as we were playing. And then we would listen to playback. And I mean, you, you have to imagine, like, here's this guy who's made these albums that sound, we just always wanted to sound like Nirvana making a Steve Albini record. And it was a dream come true. And as a drummer, I mean, you know, to to get that Steve Albini drum sound, it's like, um, it was it was a joy. It was really- And what is it, can I just really ask, and, and, without getting overly technical, but what is, how do you get that drum sound? Because oh, I, God. I, I, I remembered reading Hammer the Gods years and years and years ago, and they described how Jimmy Page had ideas about, I'm going to get a sound from John Bonham's drum by moving the And I remember it was a revelation to me that by moving the microphone, you could get a different sound. Because I don't know shit. Let, but me just, let me just cut you off and bum you out by saying that <laughs> everything that has ever been written about studio techniques and studio lore and all of the fables of things that have happened in the studio on famous records, every single thing in the popular culture that people have heard about happening in the studio did not happen. It's all bullshit. There are a, a very, very, very small number of the story, studio stories like, oh, they smeared cocaine on the tape, you know, like <laughs> all this. It's all bullshit. It does, you know, it's all just completely like fabulous stuff that people write because they they want to ascribe some sort of magic to the process there's no magic to it well this is heartbreaking <laughs> what about um, jimmy page really being the guy who played all those cool so, leads for the so, who in the early 60s for example is that a lie i mean that's probably true jimmy page i heard okay from, so not everything's bullshit okay is but, there a santa but things like <laughs> You know, like, like I think Dave can confirm that he set up a normal drum kit in a normal room and I put normal microphones all around it and then I didn't fuck with him. Right. Like, you know. It's about not getting in the way. And the, the like, I, I suppose one, one thing that's kind of notable is the ambient sound in that room. That room is really nice. It was a really nice acoustic sound. And I'm fond of using the ambient sound in a room if the room is is nice. The room we're sitting in right now is a lovely sounding room and the, the sound of my voice echoing off the walls is much better than my actual voice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I talked uh, to you outside and it was awful. <laughs> but he he uses like vintage German microphones that are sweet and they have their own kind of sound and personality. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Jimmy Page because I actually interviewed Robert Plant and Jimmy Page after they made the record with you. Ooh. So Robert Plant and Jimmy Page made a record with Albini in what, 1998 or something, 99 or no, something? No, no. Like it was, wasn't that far after yours? Because it was like. Was it? Yeah. Like I was on everybody's shit list after I did your record. And then I did a <laughs> Bush record and a the Page and Plant record. And that was it. So they yeah. called me to in, uh, to interview them for this, some magazine. Yeah. And, and I. I, I you were the connection. They're like, well, you should interview these guys because you love Led Zeppelin and you've made a record with Steve Albini. And so I was terrified. I don't know if I'd ever met them before and never interviewed anyone before. And so right. we sat down and uh, tape and cameras rolling and stuff. And I knew that at some point I was, we were going to talk about you. Like I, I listened to the record. We talked about the record, but I, we were going to. And I asked why 
they chose you. And I remember Jimmy Page saying that um, he felt uh, very like connected to or familiar with your recordings because it was somehow similar to what he was trying to achieve when making Led Zeppelin records. Same sort of ambience and stuff like that. And we started talking about microphones, talking about placement and equipment and shit like that. And then Robert Plant stops us and he goes, excuse me, it's getting a bit technical, isn't it? <laughs> I'm like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> I was uh, actually dude. dreading, I was dreading this anecdote because you never told me this anecdote. Oh, I never told you that? And, yeah. uh, and my, my presumption was the reason that you never told me this anecdote was because they, they were mean to me and that you didn't want to hurt my feelings. No, 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 no. No, they loved you. You're too sensitive. People always say that about you. Um, uh, <laughs> the, um, well, let's get to it, because you said you were on uh, some people's shit list after in, in Utero. You guys make this, you have this experience, you have this great experience, you make this album, it goes off to Geffen, and then you find out, I think it was in Kurt's words, the grown-ups don't like it. They don't, They. it's too raw, they're worried about it, it's not what, they're worried it's not radio-friendly. Um, when did you start to hear about that? I, I remember hearing that the initial reaction was, you're fucking joking. You're kidding, right? Like, I think that was maybe one of the record company's first reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, it, I, when you make a record like Nevermind, of course, most of the people, the record companies want a follow-up that's going to either well, you know, we, do the Butch same Vig thing. was or, supposed to mi- mix Nevermind, and we the recording went a little o- over... And Butch wanted some time to just rest his ears and just get a, get away from it for mm-hmm. a few days. And then we went to Devonshire, remember? Mm-hmm. And then we started mixing it, and it just wasn't, the label wasn't happy. And right. then we stopped mixing the record, and we all went home. And then we brought Andy Wallace in. Mm-hmm. And that was just one of those compromises, and the label was just like, uh, you know, so then we worked with, Andy Wallace mixed Nevermind. Yeah. And so then, like, well, I like the record, but uh, we're, we'd have this, I talked to Kurt about it. We'd have these conversations. Dave would like, oh, well, you know, we are a big band and we do have this obligation and we live in a fabulous houses, right? <laughs> and so maybe we just compromise, like, what is like the big, what's going to be the radio song? See, Kurt wrote a song called Radio Friendly Unit Shifter, which yeah. is totally cynical, right? Yeah. And so like, all right. And then we knew we were big REM fans. They were recording automatic for the people in Seattle, and that was the was that was Studio X at the time. That was the best studio in Seattle. So I would go down there and hang out, and listen to them make this record, and listen to their mixes at the end of the night or their or recordings. And then that's how I got to know, know um, Scott Litt. And then some I don't remember the details, but then it was like, well, have Scott Litt could mix a song or, or two, yeah. and that's it. That's like the so, compromise. So, so to me, it feels a little bit like there's this. Again, this thing I was trying to get to earlier with this push-me-pull-you feel of we want to stay true to what we set out to do and we have this certain sound, but we are the number one band in the world and we are 
competitive and we want to get some we, radio play we, but like like for heart-shaped box remember steve like that solo like i i didn't like the way that solo was and the, the way it was just it was so it was too intense really it, snarly it was really yeah. snarly and i'm like well you know this song is a really pretty song and it's in a sad song in some ways and this i i, I think i use the term like this sounds like you're just threw this abortion on the floor. <laughs> That's what I said. Like, all of a sudden, there's this abortion on the floor. This is terrible. And then, you know, and then we would just talk. We would discuss it, you know, and then one thing led to another. And I don't know if we, yeah, so. You got the different solo, I believe. As someone who wasn't in Nirvana and didn't have these internal band conversations with them, like, my assessment of it was that they were managing their internal tensions and their it's normal after you finish a record to have some doubts about it and they're like you know like you know wander like should we do another take of this should you know should we try this i think kurt added some backing vocals to a song that had otherwise was otherwise finished like the public perception is that the record label insisted that they change things and Nirvana gave in right. on some stuff. Well, no, they were leaning and, on us. And they're, you know, they're business people, right? And that wasn't my people, right? read on it at all. Yeah. yeah. My read on it was that Nirvana had decided that they were going to resolve these things on their own. And the record label was carping to the rest of, you know, and the management and everybody, was they were carping about it. But Nirvana was going to fucking handle it. It wasn't up to them, Right. And what I said then and what I've been saying ever since is the record that made it into the stores is the record that Nirvana wanted everyone to hear. Well, you know, the funny thing is that after In Utero, it became kind of a predictable move for other bands that were in similar situations. An unknown band goes into the studio, unknown underground sort of like rock band goes into the studio, gets a record deal, goes in the studio. <clears throat> they're put into the studio with a the producer. They make an album that's produced and it does really well. And then they feel kind of weird about it because maybe it didn't sound the way they wanted it to sound. Maybe mm -hmm. they got too popular, whatever it was. And then they go into make their second record. They're like, well, now, now this is what we really sound like. So Weezer did it with their album Pinkerton, which is a fucking amazing record. The first Weezer record has a bunch of hits and they become really popular. Then they go in to make their second record, Pinkerton. And that album, it's kind of like they're in utero. Yeah. Another band like Bush, you know, Bush is a band that gets really popular and has this produced record. Then they decide, no, wait, fuck that. Now that we're big, we get to do the thing that we really want to do. So we're going to go in and make an album that's raw and the way it sounds. So I don't know if it was something that was happening before the, I'm sure it happened a million times before in utero, but for people that came from the place that we came from, being in the garage and being in the van and being in the clubs and stuff like that, I think maybe if a band felt uncomfortable with their immediate rise to fame, that's the knee-jerk reaction, is to go in and make an album where they're like, no, 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 wait, this is what we sound like. I have to say, I remember when I first heard the first track is Serve the Servants. Mm -hmm. And it is such a shot across the bow yeah. um, from the Nevermind experience, which I love Nevermind. Uh, and then I heard this, and even today, it feels a little bit like you're taking a Brillo pad and you're scrubbing the patina well, the off of something. the line of the song is Teenage Angst has paid off well, now I'm bored and old. Yeah. So He's yeah. saying, he goes, now I'm bald and or old. <laughs> then I shot him a dirty look. Really? <laughs> <laughs> he, he changed the lyric, you? yeah. <laughs> what a guy. That's what friends are for. <laughs> That was nice of him, though, to change. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really nice Kurt to change. Really, Kurt was a really nice guy. 
You know, it's only a matter of time until your check engine light comes on, which could equal an expensive repair bill, and a new engine can cost up to $6,000. Don't I know it. But this is why you need this product I'm about to mention right now. Okay. Car Shield. Mm. CarShield offers plans with low monthly rates that you can pay for your expensive repairs on your out-of-warranty car, truck, or SUV. It's so nice to have that protection of CarShield. I know. I believe. That's my belief. Some people have other beliefs, maybe religious beliefs. I think CarShield. CarShield plans provide protection on up to 5,000 major parts and systems, including items like transmission, mm. engine, even your entertainment system. Mm. Just call CarShield and choose the mechanic to do the work. CarShield administrators will handle the rest and save you money. Look, I saw your car today. You've got a beautiful car, but you've got to haul your family around in this yeah. car. This is a vital piece of machinery for you. You need Car Shield. I do. And you know, I you know I don't take care of my cars very well. So Car Shield it would definitely come in. You know, and also with their A rating from the BBB, don't ask me. Car Shield is the name you can trust to save you money on covered auto repairs. Now's the time to make the smart choice to protect yourself from the sky-high auto repair bills. Visit carshield.com/conan. Save 20% today. Again, that's carshield.com/conan to save 20%. Visit carshield.com slash Conan to lock in your price today. Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend is sponsored by ADT. Now ADT professionally installs Google Nest products so your home is safe and smart. You can check in on your home and manage your security systems from virtually anywhere. Google Nest cams can tell the difference between a person, an animal, a vehicle, or with the Nest doorbell, even a package. You can know that there's a package out there. I know. And not a person. You don't have to do anything. Yeah, sometimes a person rings the doorbell and I think it's a package. Anyway, (laughs) and with Nest Aware as part of your monthly ADT service, you can get 30 days of event video history, even smarter notifications like when a familiar or unfamiliar face is seen. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. You can view video of an alarm event and verify or cancel an alarm with just a tap. I'm always setting off alarms accidentally. This is helpful for me. Oh, good. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, well, you got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google, Nest Cam, Nest Doorbell, and Nest Aware are trademarks of Google LLC. This is a record now. The range of, of the songs is so, for the difference between, say, a service service and an all apologies or heart shaped box and, you milk know, radio it. friendly unit, you know, it's just, it's How about milk, it. milk it is just downright menacing. And yeah. that's when you get the full on Kurt Cobain, just the way he does the vocals is just terrifying. It's really spooky. And but then there's spooky. all that stuff that's so sweet too. Yeah, like, it you is. Know, like, um, yeah. yeah. And, even like even on like the songs that have like big dynamic like harsh bits, when he was recording the vocals, he always had that little toy, that little broken acoustic guitar, and he was strumming oh, right. along. So like a lot of the songs in the verses, there'll be this like sort of funky sounding acoustic guitar, which was kind of a comfort thing for him. What just, was the guitar? Was it just a it was really just a broken down string with the six strings on it, and then it wouldn't stay in tune, so he. T- tightened the cheap tuning pegs with like a screwdriver and then you'd have to use pliers <laughs> to like tune it like they were so tight and i think it had like a crack in the top <laughs> and stuff it was a like a real junk. yeah but it was a total piece of junk he was more comfortable singing if he was <laughs> strumming along on this guitar so you hear this acoustic guitar 
under the vocals in a lot of these songs and the verses. And it's not like he did a session where he did the acoustic guitar overdub. He was just strumming the acoustic guitar while he was singing as a, as a comfort thing for himself. And it stayed on the record because it didn't sound bad. It sounded fine, right? And it was a casual and loose and informal thing, but it, it made him more comfortable. And so when I think of his aesthetic, I don't think of this harsh, gnarly, violent thing. And when you listen, like when you think about the way people describe that record at the time, so it's like, oh, it's this cathartic, menacing, terrorish, you know, terroristic kind of a it thing. It could be. And you listen to it. Yeah. And there are there are big, you know, angry, powerful moments on it. But it's like a lot of it, I think, is really sweet. I, I remember when you came here in 2013, we did that alternate version of it. And we're playing through this stuff and we're listening to it. And like we played the masters for the, like the first thing we did was play the masters of the original session. And both of us were like, man, this sounds really great. Like you, I'm. You're, you know, you're listening to it now with the 25 or 30 years of aesthetic that we've been exposed to since then. And what was the fucking big deal? Like, well, what were people so hot about? It just sounds like a really good record. Well, I, I, so, I mean, to be fair, I got to point out the reviews when the album came out universally, almost without exception, were glowing. I mean, people really, the, the critics, whatever that means to you guys at the time, thought it was fabulous work. Bad reviews sting. I wouldn't know. <laughs> never a bump in the road <laughs> i hear an echo um yes That's they those, do those fabled electrical audio acoustics is what you're hearing <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but it was appreciated uh, when it came out and of course one of the difficulties is that once kurt died everybody had to go back and parse through in utero and read lyrics like they're tea leaves oh, leading yeah. you somewhere. Yeah. And that feels like a recipe for incredible bullshit and misunderstanding. You can do it with Soundgarden lyrics too. Yeah, it's strange. When we were making the record, we did all of the instrumental tracks first. I don't know if Kurt sang any of the songs live. It was all just the three of us doing the instrumental tracks first, live in a room, without really having ever heard what Kurt was going to sing or even how he was going to sing it. Like his his melodies and patterns that most of these things, I just listen to them as instrumentals. So it was always exciting, like a mystery, knowing like, oh, he's in there singing this track today and wondering what it was going to sound like when he was finished. And one of, the, you know, one of Kurt's uh, amazing abilities was not just that he was a great lyricist, but he had a really specific kind of signature melodic turn of phrase. So he could he he always braided really two simple lines together, I think, in a way that um, was almost unpredictable. And he would go from like maybe a gentle voice to a scream, or maybe a minor key to a major. But he would do it in this way that was like really beautifully patterned, which I always thought was really cool and really simple. Ultimately, at most everything that he did, I thought was simple but really smart you know anyway so you would hear these things as they came back and you would hear for the first time his melodic idea but also the the lyric and um every time i would hear it for the first time i'd think that's just that's just odd that's unusual it's a it's a weird uh what a strange thing to say what does that mean? But as the drummer, of course, I'm like, shit, did I slow down in the chorus? Now, fuck, my kick drum's too, but you know, it's I, still to this day, if I listen to that record, I'll find things or I'll feel things that I didn't necessarily feel 25 years ago, not just in light of everything that had happened. But of course that, you know, everything that did happen can 
you know, kind of screw the lens a little bit or distort maybe what it felt like before and what it feels like now. I think it's a slippery slope. It's easy to to look back at that stuff. And yep. there's a thing that people don't give Kurt credit for enough, which is that a, a lot of people think of his lyrical sensibility as just being a journal of his feelings, right? He was an artist and he was incorporating stuff from, you know, other things, other influences, bands and records that he admired, stuff that he'd read, like literature. There's a line in one of the songs, I think it's, um, most babies smell like butter. Is that, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what a weird observation. Did you like <laughs> smell a baby? And like, he just had a kid, right? And, 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 he's, and I found out that that was a, a near direct quote from a book that he'd read about a guy who had this sort of sensory experience of the world that was abnormal and you know soundless apprentice yeah soundless apprentice a track on the on in utero Mm -hmm. yeah and you know and then like he's he's from seattle and francis farmer is a tragic figure a local person to the seattle area like a lot of lore involved in there were like there had been recently come to light a lot of the sort of manipulative stuff that had been done to her uh, during her career to try to manage her career. Yep. Like you can see that there are parallels there where there, you know, like he may have been feeling pressures from outside people trying to manage his artistic expression for their benefit and seeing a parallel between his life and Francis Farmer's life and then using her as a figure. It's like, such a great title for a song. Yeah, and that uh, image uh, of th- leaving a blanket of ash, burn all the assholes yeah. and leave a blanket of ash on the ground. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, and also it felt like a little bit of a reaction to, I read somewhere once, I think that there were so many just one name songs that Kurt was really interested in like going the other way. So oh, it, right. Francis Farmer will have her revenge, or the ghost of Francis, will we'll have her revenge on Seattle, yeah. just as this, or as a radio friendly, you know, shipping unit what th- these were attempts to say I- I- i'm reacting to this cute moment we're in where everything is just one word <laughs> and he was aware of that as a trope and he was playing and he played with it he had there was a one song he wanted to call gallons of rubbing alcohol roll through the strip <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. yeah, we had that jam yeah we yeah. did that and he didn't want to be like like be dated or be put in like some kind of box or something mm-hmm. so he also was just cryptic and that allowed people to just invite people in to make their own interpretation of it. Then if you look at his other forms of expression, like Steve said, like Kurt was an artist and he was, he was a great painter. He was a sculptor. He would do um, comic books and he's more than happy to walk you through every panel of like a comic he did. <laughs> like, right. And and they were always just tragic figures, the people, and they were, or just weird, like writhing spirit apparition kind of, Everything was just kind of strange and dark and weird, but and then still, but very well done, you know, be- beautiful, very, you know, done, done very well. So that was when he was expressing himself musically is that, you know, in, in utero, that's all over in utero. You know, I can go anywhere in the world, anywhere and see someone walking down the street in a Nirvana t-shirt. And I was, I mean, we're here in Chicago. We were walking last night to go get a bite to eat saw someone in a Nirvana t-shirt, but I mean, I could be in, you know, I could, be, I could be on Guam and just see someone randomly yeah. walk by in a Nirvana t-shirt. And what, what always strikes me about these moments is that there's this massive projection that happens, which is Nirvana, legend, Kurt, 
it all gets prismed out and it gets so huge. And then I talk to you guys and he's your friend that you knew intimately. You guys were very close and it's all become so much bigger. There are people out there that have opinions, strong opinions about who he was and what he meant and what you guys meant. And it must just seem surreal to you at times. Like, no, 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 that was our, that was our friend. There was three of us. We were in this, we were in a van together yeah. and it has now become uh, this the IMAX projection on the world. When my kids sometime will ask me, let's say, uh, my daughter Harper and I were driving in the car not long ago, six months ago, and a Nirvana song came on. And we don't listen to Nirvana at home. This Nirvana song comes on, she's singing along to the words. And I'm thinking, wow, that's weird. I've never heard her listen to a Nirvana song. How does she know a Nirvana song? And she says, um, she said, Dad, how old were you when you made this song? She said, God, I think I was like 22, maybe. She goes, oh, uh, how old was Kurt? I said, I think he was maybe like 23, 24. She goes, what was he like? And I'd say, well, he was, he was really nice. He's kind of shy, sometimes quiet, but he was cool. But she says, well, um, he was shy. Was he shy around people that he knew or people that he didn't know? And I said, well, kind of a little bit of, of both. And she said, God, that's so strange that someone who feels shy like that, that could write these songs and sing them for everyone to hear and then stand on stage in front of 100,000 people and play them. I thought that was so cool because I think she wasn't looking so much at that other thing. Yep. She was looking at the person, right? And, you know, after Nirvana was over, that that curtain got sort of like, sort of pulled away. So it changed the way I thought about every other mythological rock star that I'd ever followed in my entire life. And it really made me realize, oh shit, they were an actual human being. We talked like they're playing cards or something like that, but they're just people. Yeah. Can somebody help me with this pronunciation of this term apotheosis? Yeah. Sounds right. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Is that that soap that you get apotheosis? <laughs> that you need soap to treat it. Uh -huh. The special medicated soap. <laughs> Sounds like the name of a boutique that I yeah, cannot I afford a single yeah. fucking I've been taking Sky Rizzy for that. I don't know if that's <laughs> And that's what it is. So like basically the apotheosis. What's this whole idea that something uh well, okay, so I had just, this is just my own personal connection to a very public thing for you guys, but there was a some, back when they were a big deal, MTV Awards kind of situation. And because I was brand new on the scene, you know, here's this new guy, we're sending him to the, he's gonna be sitting in like the second or third row. And you guys got up and spoke because it was very shortly after Kurt had died. And, and the oh, two of right. you went up on stage and spoke and I remember just having this powerful feeling of they lost their friend. You could just feel how raw and personal it all was in that moment. People that are in bands are the, the fraternity that you feel like the, compa the companionship of the people that you're intimate, creative with day-to-day -day basis is a really incredibly strong bond. And it's also, you, you know those people intimately. We have the this box set we yep. did and john silva did a really good job with that he's a music fan first and foremost and if you i'm not going to be selling my nirvana coffin or whatever but mm -hmm. it has like uh, live performances there's because this thing is packed i'm it's curious packed with like posters and backstage yeah. passes and john silva and silva artist management they put they put it all together and tons of other tracks that didn't make it 
onto in utero or there's a bunch of live stuff on here see i'm wondering if it has the demos that we did you know in brazil well, but there's like live in rome live in los angeles live in seattle and they're board tapes and then there we use technology to kind of clean to clean them up you can make a multi-track now from a stereo digital you guys audio have tape. favorite live performances that just come you to know mind? at this point pat smear had joined the band yes, yeah pat. right he and that was the, a huge like from the release of the album he was touring with yeah you guys. this was it was big because we had made the album and kurt had talked about you know at one point there was a second guitarist in nirvana mm -hmm. before i joined the band and he wanted to get another guitarist at this point he goes down to los angeles he comes back he says i found our second guitar player and we said really who's that and he said pat smear from the germs mm -hmm. and if anybody knows the germs they were a very early on the punk rock band in los angeles perhaps the most dangerous and um so i just thought like oh my god i can't believe that fucking guy's still alive because he was in the germs and, <laughs> and also and just, a, and a side a sad side note is darby crash yeah he committed suicide yeah the singer of the, the, germs. Singer of the germs right. anyway so pat comes up and i'm just expecting this big disgusting fat junkie and he's the most wonderful energetic brilliant beautiful well put together uh, he, he he really breathed this whole new life into the band. The great thing too is I there's a great anecdote that defines his contribution to the band. In addition to being a great musician, and Beyond, there was a yeah. story of you guys playing a show, and then there's a not a nice review about the show, and it says you know the show was off, and someone's reading the review. Oh, and I people remember are getting, that. People that are getting pissed. The opening night of the tour, the Utero tour, was at the Arizona State Fair, mm -hmm. and it's the first <laughs> night. And so, you know, it takes a couple shows to get rolling. And so yeah. it was Edna Gunderson from USA Today. She's the lead. <laughs> a name that will live in infamy. Yeah. And she gave us a Garth. mediocre review. And like, why didn't she go like three or four shows into the tour? Then she would have caught us. And that's what you get on this um, right. box set. You get the band is at full. At full yeah. But what happens is this review comes out. And the story I heard uh, is that the, the review comes out and everyone on the bus is like, God damn it. Why did USA Today write this about us? And Pat said, oh, come on. We sucked. And everybody <laughs> laughed. Meaning just sort of <laughs> taking taking the piss out of the whole thing. Come yes. on, we were off. Well, you know. Well, also I love that who do you call to take over the technical side of things in a guitar band? The fucking guy from the Germans? Yeah, yeah. Like, I can't think of a I can't think of a band that is a, a a closer parallel to the kind of like uneasy feeling that you got from the weirdest moments of Nirvana than the Germs. Like their 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 whole thing had that same sort of yeah like familiar but slightly sleazy and slightly uncomfortable quality and and it was a sonic thing like the sound of pat smear's guitar it sounded a little sour and a little you know a little creepy and it seemed like a like it was a natural as soon as i heard about it i thought oh yeah that's a natural it yeah. was it was great so when we came out to do these shows i mean there were bigger shows and i mean really it was our first arena tour you know when did you like was did you like playing the arenas it, it felt strange at first, I think. I mean, I, towards the end of 1991, we did an arena tour opening up for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, um, you know, I, I was always afraid that, that what we did, that energy wouldn't translate in a bigger room, yep. you know, because we were used to playing places this big and put us in the corner there and the place explodes and it's amazing to try to, you know, move that yeah. to a bigger room would be hard. So... Um, 
it felt weird. All of a sudden, there was like caterers. Yeah, like we had a caterer caterers. on tour, and then the catering Kurt fired him because they made the wrong mac and cheese. Well, no, because <laughs> they did it because they had really good food. I thought it was really good, and Kurt like corn dogs and macaroni and cheese and our bologna sandwiches. And so, so they were making actual macaroni with actual cheese. And he yeah. had never had that before. And that was, was the last fucking like straw. <laughs> you know, so it was just like, you know, it was one of those things like, ah. And well, we did a show. We had a show. It was a 90-minute show. We had a stage set up. We would do our acoustic breakdown part. Yeah, it's like We did the shit. same show every night. Play. It was like $20 tickets. Tickets were like 20 bucks because you could sell CDs and make money. And then we had like working family prices. But then also the best part was we're like, oh, okay, we're an arena band now. Right. Cool. The opening band is going to be the boredoms from Japan. Yeah, I know. <laughs> or the opening band yeah. is going to be fucking the butthole surfers. So you've got all these kids that like just bought their Nirvana t-shirt and they come to the rock show to see their favorite band. And they've got like Bobcat Goldthwait is the MC. Yes. And then yeah. fucking the butthole surfers. And the <laughs> kids are like, what the did Bob, fuck is going on How right did uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite become the opener for Kurt, Nirvana? You guys were real fans. We were fans. Yeah. Kurt had Meet Bob, that record. Yeah. And then we just so happened to be, it was like in 1990. And I, we were in like Michigan or Wisconsin at a college radio station. And Bobcat was there. And he's like, hey, we know you. He didn't know who we were. We Nobody knew who we were. Like, hey, we, you're you're on Police Academy. Like, we're like, <laughs> <laughs> and he he tells the story he goes yeah I met them and I said good luck with your little band as, <laughs> as we said goodbye and then we just yeah I don't know we just got he was sort of on our side like as as Cool. As a comedian, sure, he was like kind of a cynical, subversive, yes. fucking weirdo. Yeah, yeah. And so we liked him. He got a bad review. Rex Reed gave him a bad review, and he goes, "He was my favorite." Favorite judge on the gong show. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do we sum this up? It's been 30 years and it must feel good that this work stands the test of time. Well, it does feel good. We'll come back in the 50 year anniversary and see what kind of what we have to offer. Yeah. And uh, it's great that people are, are interested and in that we have the opportunity to do this and to to. Like at it's, there's vinyl and there's live shows, so you can you won't be tracked or have a cookie put on your consciousness, and you can just put the the tone arm down on a piece of vinyl and listen to Nirvana live in Rome or Los Angeles or Seattle, and you can be it'll it can capture imagination. You're invited to come in, to come inside that world and experience that show. So, you know, I'm just happy to to have the opportunity. And you said that there's no you don't play Nirvana at home. No, I is mean, this going to be an exception, do you think? No, I mean, the cool thing about being a musician for a long time, making a bunch of records, is that you eventually start measuring your life not in, like, increments of time or whatever. It's, like, albums that you've made. So if you ask me about a particular record, mm -hmm. a Scream record or a Foo Fighters record or whatever, I'll immediately know what year it was made. And I remember almost everything about where I was and who I was at that time so when i think like 30 years ago what the fucking what's that even mean 30 years but if you say 1993 I, everything comes back yep. and then when you listen to it to me it's almost like these um they're sort of like sonic snapshots like in a photo album or something so when i when i hear the music it brings back a lot of personal vivid 
memories of just stupid shit. Like I remember that jacket that I had or that stupid hat I bought in North Carolina or the sock full of mashed potatoes that, that fucking Steve put in my suitcase. And that leather coat, was the, I felt bad when I got ripped off. I know, I was so sad. But things like that. But then also, um, you know, Again, you know, I, I refer to my children a lot because they're uh, discovering music in the same way that, well, differently than we did then, but sort of emotionally in the mm-hmm. same way that we did at their age. And, you know, to see their reaction to this music now is really fucking cool. Actually, we did this one, we did this uh, this uh, charity benefit thing once, that uh, Art of Elysium thing that we did oh, a long time ago. And, um, and uh, we got asked to play this thing in Los Angeles, but we couldn't make it. And then the person who was putting on the show said, well, why don't you just play acoustic? I'm like, fuck, man, I don't want to do that. So I thought, you know what, maybe I'll call Chris and Pat and see if maybe Joan Jett will come up and we can do some Nirvana songs or maybe someone else is there, whatever. So um, we were thinking about people to sing and then I don't know who brought it up, but some maybe it was you that said, does Violet want to sing a song? Or maybe it was Pat, my daughter Violet. And um, I saw this. Did you see it? I think there was, yeah, there was footage of it. Yeah, yeah. and so I, I was like, well, I'll ask her. And I said, hey, Vi, um, she's an incredible singer. I'm like, and she really likes Nirvana. At the time, I think she was maybe 14, probably 14, 14 year old girl. I said, You wanna sing a Nirvana song? She's like, Yeah, absolutely. And I said, Which one? Of all of them, not just this record, of all of them. And she picks Heart Shaped Box. Mm-hmm. And my first reaction was, What have I done to my kid to fuck them up so bad <laughs> <laughs> that this is that this is the song they want to sing? But um, but seriously, I was I was very uh, proud. Yeah. And what I realized is kids these days, there's like this window in between the ages of like maybe 10 and 13 or 11 and 14 or something like that, where almost every kid goes through a Nirvana phase and it's for a reason. And I think it has less to do with the sound. Um, I think it has more to do with what it means because I think it means the same thing today to those kids as it did when we released it. Yeah. So that, to me, is the coolest thing. And well, selling a lot of t-shirts. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, it has been an honor. Seriously. You're great artists, and you also have a lot of integrity, and you've stood the test of time. And so getting to hang out with people like you is a big deal to me, and I really appreciate it. So uh, Steve, Chris, Dave, thank you very much for doing this. And uh, I was really looking forward to this one, and you did not disappoint. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. I'm happy it. to be your friend. Well, I got you there. It yeah, took a you while. lessened the anxiety considerably. I feel jazzy. Still? <laughs> <laughs> effervescent. You look effervescent. Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. With Conan O'Brien, Sonam Obsessian, and Matt Gourley. Produced by me, Matt Gourley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Nick Liao, and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Theme song by The White Stripes. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Take it away, Jimmy. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples. Engineering by Eduardo Perez. Additional production support by Mars Melnick. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Britt Kahn. 
You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review read on a future episode. Got a question for Conan? Call the Team Coco hotline at 669-587-2847 and leave a message. It, too, could be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks.